tonight comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. Not 113 like it says in the outlines. <laughs> um, so it's the whole chapter and you can find it in your pew Bibles, most of them, on page 1198 or you can follow along on the screen. Food sacrifice to idols. Now about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came, and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, If what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall. Thank you, Crystal, for reading the Bible. Well, welcome, friends. My name's John. I'm one of the ministers at this church. A warm welcome to you if you're visiting us for the first time. Do hang around for supper afterwards. Now, why don't you take a moment now, turn around, welcome each other, grab an outline. There is an outline for this sermon and there's also a full transcript of the sermon if you'll find that helpful. So, grab that as well, you'll find that helpful. And I'll call you back in a moment. Okay, well, let me get your attention. We'll begin. Let's pray. We'll look at this uh, chapter. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which is true, uh, which teaches us about you and how we are to live. And so we pray that we might learn that and that we might walk in your ways. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Christianity 
is a thinking religion. That is, you need to be thinking and you need to think to become a Christian. Now, this is not to say that the other religions don't require thinking, but Christianity is a religion where we pursue knowledge and wisdom and understanding. We pursue knowledge of God as we read the word of God. We pursue the truth about this world, about us, about our life, about who we are. And that is why historically, a bit of history lesson now, historically universal education and literacy rose with Protestant Christianity. And this is because of our emphasis on the word of God. We want people, all people, to be able to read so that they can read the word of God, so that they can understand who God is. Now, during the Dark Ages, education at that time was really something only reserved for the elite of society, the doctors and the lawyers, the theologians and the rulers. But around the time of the Reformation, in the 16th century, the rediscovery of the Gospel uh, propelled this push to get the Bible into the hands of everyone, into the hands of the commoners. And so the Bible was then translated into the vernacular, that is translated into the language of the common people so that they can read the Bible for themselves, gain knowledge, gain understanding and come to know God. In fact, universal education is a Christian thing. This began, in fact, with John Calvin, the reformer in Geneva in the 1500s. And then in Sweden, where tax-supported public education was pushed for. That's a Christian thing. That was a Christian initiative. And this became the norm in Protestant Europe. And so this was so that everyone can read the Bible, become literate, read the Bible, gain a knowledge of God as they read scripture. Now England, they joined this trend as well. They joined this trend to provide public edu- uh, free public education, but only in the 1800s. And that was only after being shamed by the Sunday school movement ran by the churches. Even here in Australia, if you know a bit of the history of our education system here. The first schools, or first schools in Australia, were not were not government schools; they were church schools, and that's because of our emphasis to get people to read and to read the Bible so that they can know God. Now, the government in our country did eventually take over from the churches in running state schools, government schools, providing public education, but the agreement back then was that when the schools were handed over to the government churches were allowed to go into the schools to teach scripture, to teach about Christianity. And so we still have that today, though it's been challenged. Even in the USA, all but one of the 123 colleges which became universities in colonial America were Christian institutions. Establishing of universities was a Christian thing. The establishment of the centre of learning was a Christian thing. And many of these universities were established for the training of ministers. Harvard University, for example, one of the most prestigious in the world, they founded, they were founded on this statement. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ which is eternal life and therefore to lay on Christ in the bottom as the only foundation on all sound knowledge and learning. That's Harvard University was established on on Christian principles in Christian thought in the pursuit of the knowledge of God. And so Christianity 
is a thinking religion. We're given minds to plumb the depths of the, of the things of God that he has revealed. But, there's a big but, and in, 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 as important and as central as thinking and understanding and knowledge is to Christianity, it is not enough. If Christianity was all about what I know, then there's actually something lacking. Because you see, my knowing must affect my doing. That is Christianity. My knowing must affect my doing. There must not be a divide between what I know and how I live and how I act. What I know must affect how I live. What I know must affect how I love. And so as we continue this series in 1 Corinthians, this is what we see. This was the problem Paul starts to address now with the Corinthians. There were some who knew a lot and there were some who did not know a lot. And so the problem with the Corinthians was that there were some who knew a lot more than the others. And the issue Paul touches on today is in relation to food sacrificed to idols. Can you eat it or can't you? And so what some did was that they used their knowledge, their theological understanding. They puffed themselves up and they put others down. And so what Paul does at the beginning of this passage, let me invite you to open up your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we'll work our way through it. What Paul begins doing here is he he gives them a principle on how they are to think and act. A principle which puts into perspective how knowledge can go wrong and how love must be the way. How knowledge can go wrong and how love must be the way. They are to have a love that builds, a love that builds others up, a love that builds people in their faith, in their godliness, in Christ. You see, my understanding of God and of Christianity is not meant to give me a big head. You see, Christians are not meant to walk around with big heads because we know the truth. It's meant to force us and cause us and and cause us the desire to love to build others up. It's not meant to puff us up. And this is what Paul says, verses 1 and 2. He says, "We, we know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. What Paul is saying there is, you might know some stuff, but you don't know everything. And so don't be so up yourself. But can you see how knowledge can puff up? It's, it's, it's something quite simple we see all the time. Knowledge can puff up. If I know a lot, it can make me proud and arrogant. I mean, don't you know what propitiation means? How foolish of you. Which school do you go to? Or don't you know whether you are supralapsarian or an infralapsarian? I mean, which church do you go to? Or, or, or don't you know about Zwingli, who he was and what he did for the church? I mean, who's your minister? What are you learning at church? You see, if I know more, that can puff me up and put others down. I mean, I'm up here, you see, and you're down there. I know so much. I know Greek, or try to know Greek. I know Hebrew, Aramaic, I've done philosophy and ethics. I'm up here. You're down here, you simple Christians. You see how knowledge can puff up and put down others. And so Paul was tackling this, this problem and this issue. Knowledge can puff up and make us seem bigger than we are. And so what does Paul do? Well, now what Paul does is he gets to the heart of the issue. In fact, what's more important than you knowing stuff? What's more important than you knowing about God is that you, are, is that you love God. 
is that you in fact know him personally, not know about God, but love him. You see, God is not a, a collection of ideas and thoughts and facts for us to investigate, for us to explore and to discover. He is a person for us to love, to adore and to worship. And when we do, when we do do that to love God, listen to what Paul says, this is radical. If you love God, the person who loves God, you are known by God. God knows you, knows you by his name, knows you intimately. God loves you. Look at verse 3. But the man who loves God is known by God. Now you have to imagine how awesome that is, to be known by God. Now let me try to get you to imagine how great that is. Imagine for a moment with my acting skills, with my receding hairline and my balding scalp, I make it to Hollywood one day. I become a mega star at Hollywood. I, I do lots of blockbuster movies. Now, just say that were to happen in a few years' time. Not going to happen. Terrible actor, it won't happen. But just say, I become someone famous. Now, you people, you know me now. And so, in a few years' time, you might say to your friend, hey, I know that guy on TV, that superhero. He was my minister. We were buddies. We went fishing together. And your friend might say, well, good for you. But you see, that, that, that gives you a bit of credit that you know me. But how much greater would it be if, just say, I were to get an Oscar? And as, I, as I'm giving my acceptance speech, I want to I thank a lot of people. I thank God, but I want to thank my friends at St. Stephen's. I want to thank these people by name. I mean, you're watching TV with your friend and you're saying, he's talking about me. Wouldn't, it be, wouldn't that be so much more special be, to be known rather than just to know? And so think about that. Think about that with God. How much more so with God? That the God of this universe, the God who made the heavens and the earth and everything in it, the God who gave you life, that he would know you, know you by name and would love you. And so Paul wants the Corinthians to know this, to know that what's more important than what you know is that you are known by God. And so he reminds them the knowledge is important Christianity is a thinking religion. You need to think, but have a love that builds, not a knowledge that puffs. But now in saying this, Paul is not saying that knowledge is not important at all. He's not being an anti-intellectual. Christianity is not anti-intellectual. You don't lose your brain. You don't drop your brain when you become a Christian. Knowledge is important. Truth is important, you see. And so what Paul does now is, he acknowledges that those who do know more, that they, they in fact got the truth right. They were actually thinking what was sound. They got it theologically right. And so this issue again about eating foods, sacrifice to idols, participating in pagan feasts. Can you eat it or can't you eat it? Can you participate in it or can't you? See, in a historical context, the local temple was like the local gathering. It was the social gathering. It was like the local restaurant where you would go to have a feast when you host a party. That might be a place where you would host it. But the thing was when you have a feast, when you have a meal at the local temple, the food was sacrificed, had been sacrificed to idols. In fact, many believed back then uh, that demons and evil spirits inhabited the, the food, the meat. And so that's why they had to sacrifice these animals to get rid of it. And so what were the Corinthians to do? This was the issue. Can they eat it or can't they? 
Well, there were those with more knowledge, those who have done more thinking, those who have been Christians longer. They were saying, of course you can. Of course you can eat the, the food sacrificed to idols. Idols aren't real anyway, so it doesn't matter. But then on the other side, there were those who were new Christians, recent converts. They were once immersed in pagan idol worship and their conscience were thinking, you can't do this. This is wrong. This food, this meat has been sacrificed to idols. We can't participate. Otherwise, it would mean that we would be worshipping the idol ourselves. And so what did Paul say? Which group did Paul agree with? Well, Paul here says that there is no such thing as idols. They are just things carved out of wood or stone. They are merely products of our rebellious, sinful imagination. It's not as though in heaven God sits on the throne and he's got these many idols and gods competing for the throne. It's not like that at all. And so look at what Paul says in verse 4. He says, So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. And who is this God? He specifies verse 5 and 6. He goes on, For even if there are so called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. And so Paul here says the truth is important. The truth is that there is only one true God, the God of the Bible. And so the group who did know more the group who were uh, who have been Christians more, the group who were who have thought theologically deeper, well, they know the truth. There's no no problem with eating meat. Paul agrees with them. It's okay if you have your steak. But though that was the case, though they, they knew what was right and true, though they knew the truth of the idols that they were not real anyway, they did not have a love that builds. They had a knowledge, but they did not have a love that builds. They did not have a practice that loves. And so this is what Paul goes on to explain. He explains, you guys who know a lot, you must consider this new group, these new converts, these new Christians. The difficulty, the challenge for them, the dilemma for those new Christians is that they've come just from this pagan idol worship. They've just come from that. How can they go back to that? They've not yet shaken off. The, the pagan demonic associations with uh, temple feastings and eating food sacrificed to idols. So how can you get them to go back to that way? And so Paul is saying to those who know more, you have to consider those guys, even though you're right, you're theologically right, you have to consider those guys. And so he says this in verse 7, but not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. That is, their conscience is, is it's broken, it's wounded, it's damaged. You see, what was important to Paul was not the matter of eating or drinking. That's relatively trivial. The steak, the bacon, the sausages, lobsters, doesn't matter. The eating and drinking, that was not the big issue. What was important to Paul was the conscience of the believers. That was what was important. And so he says in verse 8, 
But food does not bring us near to God. We are not worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. The issue is not about the eating but the conscience of the fellow believer. And so Paul now reminds those who have been Christians longer, you who know more, you who have read the Bible, you who have thought more, you who are more knowledgeable, but this is how you are to act. Act in such a way that would not harm the conscience of your fellow believers, of your younger fellow believers. Have a Christ-like love where you would even deny your own rights for the sake of the brother. You're not thinking about yourself, you're not thinking about claiming and demanding your own rights, but you're thinking of your brother and your sister. You see, in the end, God is not interested in a head full of knowledge, but he's interested in a heart full of love. And so we see this, verses 9 to 11. Paul says, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. A stumbling block is something you put in front of someone's path to get them to trip over and to fall. And he goes on, For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what he has, sacri- has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. You see, that's how serious it is. Though you know more, though you are theologically right, don't abuse that. Don't use that against your brother. Don't break him down. Don't pull him down. That is how serious it is. The fellow believer is he destroyed simply because you decide to go to the temple and to eat. But look at what Paul says. It gets worse. Harming a fellow Christian is nothing less than harming Christ himself. And Paul would have known that personally in his own experience. Remember the story of Paul on the road to Damascus where he was headed to persecute Christians. Jesus appeared to him from heaven and what did Jesus say? Why are you persecuting my church? Why are you persecuting my believers? Is that what Jesus said? No, Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? To harm the church is to harm Jesus. To hurt anyone in the church is to hurt Jesus. And so Paul says in verse 12, when you sin against your brother in this way and wound, that is to inflict a blow or to assault their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. And so what then does Paul suggest those with greater knowledge, those who have been Christians longer, those who have thought theologically deeper, what should they do with what they know? Well, Paul tells them what he would do. Look at verse 13, our final verse. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall. Now, just imagine that. Paul would deny that right of eating bacon and steak and all the other meaty stuff. Become a vegetarian. Not that that is a bad thing. That's an option but he would deny his right for the sake of his fellow believer. You see, what Paul is teaching us here, though that situation is not something we can really associate with today, but he teaches us a principle, and that is to be Christ-like, to be like Jesus. That is what we are called to as Christians. You see, just think about the life of Jesus. He was entitled to rights and freedoms when he walked on this earth. All those who mocked him, 
and ridiculed him, who, who plotted to kill him, those who nailed him to the cross. Jesus had rights and freedoms at that time. He could have called ten legions of angels to destroy them, to smack them down in that very moment. But what did he do? He denied his rights. He laid down his rights so that he would bring freedom to his own people to purchase them for himself. And so Paul's teaching in this passage is really simple. Though the situation we can't really relate to but the principle still applies. That is, live in a way that loves and love in a way that builds. Love is other people centred, other people focused. And so what does this mean for us today? How are we to ensure as a church, as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, that we are always growing in the way that God would have us and in the way that God would want us? Well, there are two ways where we do get this wrong. At least two ways, but I'll point out two. Firstly, we get this wrong when we aim to grow in knowledge without growing in love. We get it wrong when we aim to just grow in knowledge, be smart, be intelligent, think deeply without growing in love. And so how does that look like? Well, what that looks like is learning for learning's sake, gaining knowledge so that I can walk around with a bigger head than everyone else, gaining a sharp mind in the things of God, being precise in my theology and in what I believe, but in doing so without growing in love without that knowledge translating to how I live and how I love, that is not the way of the Christian life. Now, I wonder if you've ever encountered anyone in your life, in your Christian walk, so caught up with theological precision, but the person remains cold and distant and uninviting and unwelcoming and makes you feel small every time you talk to them. Or... Are you someone like that? Are you someone like that? You see, I was one time as a younger Christian. As a younger Christian, I grew up in a church, a church I still loved. The gospel was believed in this church, but the Bible wasn't really taught well. We didn't have Bible studies. We didn't have Bible talks where the minister would work and expound the word of God and work his way through scripture. And so, in our understanding of Scripture and of God, we were, I was very limited. But then when I went to university, I joined the Christian Union Group and I attended my first national training event, my, the summit camps, the lunchtime Bible studies and my mind was stretched like never before. It was just an awesome, exhilarating experience. That is how you're meant to learn about God. That is how you're meant to study the Bible. That's how you're meant to grow in your understanding and knowledge of God. It was awesome. My experience as a university student going to Christian Union, hearing the Bible taught well for the very first time, that was mind-boggling. And so I was learning, I was wanting to learn more and more and, and I spent a lot of time learning more and more. And so when I, went, uh, when I returned to my church, you know what happened? My head was a bit like... It was 10 inch bigger than everyone else's when I went back to church. I served in many ways. I'm not saying that that is a, bad, a good thing, in fact, you need to understand. I served in many ways. I served in Sunday school. We started up the youth group. We started an English-speaking service. I served on a deacon as a young man. And 
many times that puffed up head of mine, the things I learned from the Christian Union, the things that I, I loved about God, the deeper knowledge of the mysteries of God, my puffed up head was dictating how I behaved and what I said. And I remember this one incident on a, on a deacon's board meeting. Being a, a bit of a maverick back then, on this theological issue we, have, we were discussing, I made an older lady feel quite foolish. I was in the right. Theologically I was right, I was sound. There was nothing wrong with what, the way I thought. But I made her feel like a fool. She didn't know her stuff too well. She was trying to debate with me, this young punk, she didn't know what she was dealing with. That young 20-year-old punk that I was, I used my knowledge which puffed me up and I put her down. It was bad. I still remember that experience. I told everyone, it was bad. You can't imagine that, can you, that I would do such a bad thing. But in case you think differently of me, that later that day I did apologise to her. It came to my senses. That is not right. I was right theologically, but I was certainly not right in the way my heart behaved, in the way I practised my faith. And so do you know what the moral of that story is? Don't be a punk. Of course not, right? More than that. It was knowledge without love. But isn't it great to know that we do have a God who forgives even those silly mistakes and a God who uses our experiences to humble us. One preacher once said this, he said, when God measures a person, he puts the tape around the heart, not the head. doesn't care about your big head but about your big heart. Knowledge without love is one way we get it wrong. But just as knowledge without love is not right, so is love without knowledge. We are not to compromise on what is true and right. What we are doing here is denying our rights for the sake of the other. We're not compromising on what is true. We're not compromising on the gospel, on the tenets of the Christian faith. We're not meant to be a community that does all things in the name of love without using our minds. We can never condone sin in the name of love. You see, knowledge matters. Truth matters. How we think matters. We've given, been given minds by God and we're meant to use it. And so love without knowledge is really just misguided love. That's the second way we get it wrong. And so what should we be doing as Christians? Well, it should be quite obvious. We want both knowledge and love. We want our minds to expand in the knowledge and the wisdom and the understanding of God. We want our minds to expand. But we also want our hearts to grow larger and larger in love. We want our minds to be renewed and we want our hearts renovated. That we would even lay down our own rights for the sake of our brothers and sisters. And so think about how that might be happening in our church amongst us. You've invited some friends over for dinner. You know one of your friends is a recovering alcoholic or you know that this friend comes from a family broken by alcohol. What do you do? What do you do in a situation like that? Is it wrong to drink alcohol? Is it wrong to have a beer? Is it wrong to have lemon-lime bitters, which apparently has alcohol? Well, in the Bible it says drunkenness is wrong. There's no way about that. But drinking is permitted. But what would you do? What would be the loving thing? 
at a dinner party like that. Well, the principle is clear, isn't it? I lay down my rights for the sake of my brother and sister so that I may build them up and not tear them down. You don't want to be a stumbling block. You don't want to be a stumbling block, especially to new Christians. And so I deny my rights. Now, do you see how the principle that Paul gives us in this passage really applies in all aspects, in all areas of our life? As I mature as a Christian, my aim is not simply just to know more for the sake of knowing more. My aim is not to grow a big head. I know the truth. I know more about the Bible than you. I'm big, you're small. You see, my aim is to humbly and selflessly love like Christ, to be like Christ. Our whole life is shaped by Jesus. You see, when when Christians have disagreements and when Christians argue, it's tragic when it's unresolved, isn't it? Do I demand my rights and my way? If you think about it, leaders can impose that. It's my way or the highway. But we must remember to nurture a heart that loves to build, to build others up. And one of the great blessings that we've experienced as a family was that we had the privilege of studying at Moore College up in Sydney. Now, what made Moore College different from our university experience was that at university you go to learn, to really get a big head, right, to learn stacks of stuff, study, get your heads into the books and learn a lot, try to be the top in the class, the top in the year and so forth. But at Moore College, what was different and what made it so special was that our learning was in community. We did not only learn the deep things of God, but we got to see each other, how we were learning, how we were growing in our lives, in our, love, in our love for each other. And so at Moore College, we all lived together. Your neighbours were your fellow students. And so if you had an argument, the whole college would know. So you argue quietly. <laughs> but that was one of the blessings of our experience. We learnt not the things of God only as an academic thing, as an academic exercise, but we grew together in our love for each other. And the wonderful thing about Christianity is that that is what we all want here in our church, that all of us be like Christ. That is our desire, that is our aim, where each and every one of us, I want you to imagine this, each and every one of us, when we come to church, when we meet at growth groups, when we meet in coffee shops, when we meet, our interest is not to, to, to have a bigger head, to, to show that you know less than me. Our interest is to build the other person. And just imagine if we were all doing that. Our, our intention in coming to church is not for our own sake, but for the sake of the other, to build each other up. Now, that's a wonderful glimpse of life in heaven. And that's what we want to see in our church. And so to this evening, if you are visiting, if you are new to our church or if you've been to our church for many, many years, you grew up here, we're still a work in progress. But we want you all to know that this is what we're on about. And we want to invite you to join us that we may all together grow, grow our minds, expand our minds that we might know the deeper things of God, to know of his great amazing love for us. But at the same time, to grow our hearts, to grow our hearts in love for God and for each other. That is what we want. Just imagine, if we were all doing that 100%, what a church this would be. What a glimpse of heaven that would be.
Well, will you pray with me that that will be the case? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the person of Jesus Christ, your dear Son, who models to us so very well selfless, sacrificial giving. And so we pray, Lord, that as a church, that the minds you've given us, that we will plumb the depths of your love, of your mysteries, of all that you reveal to us, but that our hearts will grow and expand, that our love for you and for each other will grow day by day. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.